Yeah, it is Tuesday, January 25th. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Guy Adami. As always, you're watching Market Call Macro, where we break down the biggest headlines of the trading day through the lens of the futures market. It's another very volatile day here, people. So we're going to kind of keep this really tight and we're going to be serious about this stuff. Guy Adami, I don't even think you have any jokes uh, right now, but we're going to look at the major indices. Uh, we're going to look at rates. We're going to look at gold. We're going to look at oil and we're going to look at Bitcoin. Today's market call is brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And of course, our friends at Open Exchange, they manage virtual meetings that matter. Guy, we talked about it on the market call yesterday. Uh, you are at a investment conference with big institutions looking across all the macro landscape. This has been two of the craziest days that we've seen in the market really since the throes of the pandemic in early 2020. What's the word on the street, man? And I know that these sorts of investors, traders, they hate being away from their fact set machines uh, on days like today. Yeah, no question about it. And I think for most people that come up to me and there have been a lot, you know, what's going on? Why have we seen this heightened volatility the last couple of days? What's changed? And you know, what's changed is the fact that I think people come to the realization that this Federal Reserve is for real in their sort of uh, change that they're going to now to fight inflation instead of being a Federal Reserve that was extraordinarily accommodative for the last decade or so. And that, to me, is the biggest change. And we've said it. I've said it. I mean, volatility is here, uh, whether you acknowledge it or not. I don't think it's going away. And, you know, I thought we did a great job yesterday identifying levels. Now, I will tell you categorically, I didn't see we would see, I didn't think we would see the rally that we saw, but the levels that we outlined, the bounce levels held up really nicely. And what's interesting to me, Dan, and I think you could say this as well, we'll get into it. Some of the most violent rallies I have seen in my 72-year career that you talked about yesterday take place in markets that are now headed lower. So I think yesterday is one of those days you want to sort of... Um, Put a little mark on your calendar to talk about you know when that happened on January, I guess, 24th. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Guy. And when I said that 72 years, that was unfair. It's about 42 years here. But um, we listen, you know, this is a really important point, okay? You know, we take a lot of stuff. There's a lot of people who have big voices now on the internet, whether it be on the Reddit, the Wall Street Bats, or on YouTube, or this and that, or whatever. You know, us gray hairs, whether you like it or not, we've been through this. We've seen some of this stuff before, and I think it's really important. Let's look at the NASDAQ futures chart because let's just kind of show on a short-term basis the sort of volatility from the highs on Friday, guy, to its lows yesterday, about 14,800, a little bit above that, to below 13,000. 800. That is a massive, massive move in two days in a major index here. But that volatility you're talking about, that rip, man, it just went like roaring back about 5%. And there was a tweet that kind of caught my eye this morning, and I'm probably murdering his name, but he's a great, great follow on Twitter. He's from Germany, Holger Zapic. He said, just just to put things into perspective, NASDAQ days like Monday were common during the dot-com crash. NASDAQ 100 hasn't wiped out loss of almost 5% since early 2001. Late-day rally, latest lurch in volatile market this year. Um, so I thought this was really interesting. If you look at his chart about the Bloomberg data when we were down almost that much, 
To your point, guy, this was commonplace in bear markets. And let me tell you something, in protracted bear markets, like we were in, in 00, in 01, in 02, you knew you were in a bear market. There was no coming back until you put together months of positive price action. So getting your face ripped off on the short side was commonplace or catching an intermediate term low and playing for a one day or two day um, rally like that. But if you haven't traded markets like that, you don't know what it's like. Yeah, for most people, they haven't, quite frankly, because there's a new generation that's never seen anything like this. I mean, to your point, to that tweet's point, the last time we saw anything of this magnitude was probably 21 or so years ago. And I think, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I shouldn't use an adjective to describe it, but I think it's going to become somewhat commonplace. And people are going to get chopped up in this environment because that's what it's going to be, Dan, really choppy. But Liz Young spoke about this last Thursday when she said she thinks the narrative has been flipped where people have been rewarded in buying the dips, and now it's more of the selling rallies market. And I think she's spot on. And I, quite frankly, you know the last 48 hours sort of reinforces that to me. Yeah, no doubt. Um, we're going to have Liz on Market Call uh, Research on Thursday. So check that out. That'll be back at our regular time um, at 11 a.m. So it'll be really interesting to see what uh, her take is on some of this volatility over the last few days or so since we last saw her. we got to go to the S&P real quickly, Guy, because, listen, the chart looks about the same. Amanda threw up this headline for us. Mike Wilson, the head strategist over at Morgan Stanley, who was on CNBC last night, he has the lowest um, target for the S&P 500 for 2020. 22, I think about 4,400. So not far from where we're trading right now. He just doesn't see a whole heck of a lot of price or positive performance going forward. But his point last night, and he was pretty sober about this guy. And I, you, we missed you, buddy. We missed you last night on Fast Money. So it's a good thing we have you here on Market Call. He's saying state offensive. He could see another 10% drop or so in the S&P 500. So again, I want to zoom out a little bit. Let's look at this one-year chart of the S&P 500 because your levels have actually been been spot on. You said next stop, I think you said this last week, is that 200-day moving average. If we get that and we break that, we go back to those October lows. So we overshot the October lows. We got to the breakout from last spring or so, but we're hanging in. What is your take on the S&P 500 right here? Well, now, is it broken, really, is what it comes down to? And is that violation for the first time in a while of effectively the 200-day moving average? I mean, we haven't done this in probably the last 18 months or so. Is that going to hold up? And what's interesting, again, is the fact that we broke through it and then obviously took a retest of it basically on the same day, which I find really fascinating. But Carter Worth would say this is broken, and now we're more of an environment where the market bulls have to prove themselves. And they tried to yesterday. We'll see if they're able to. If you're asking me what the next logical level is, I will tell you that it comes in the form of 4,000. And I hate round numbers because they typically are lazy, but this one makes sense. Why? Because it was where we sort of topped out at, if you go back and look, March of 2021, we sort of then failed into April. And then subsequent rally is where we traded back down to in the middle of May and where we bounced from. So that 4,000 level to me which is effectively now, what, 9% or so from where we are right now-ish, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And I think that lines up with Mike, what Mike Wilson is saying. Yeah, and listen, you know, I knew Mike back in 2000 when, you know, that when we were talking about that kind of first 
bear market here. And he was a tech specialist back then covering the industry. And he was just spot on. And, and he and I used to talk all the time about, you know, this kind of one step forward, two steps back price action. And I'll just mention this with the S&P 500, because, you know, as we were focused on the NASDAQ futures with the dot com bust, you know, the price action of those sorts of short squeeze guys, Guy, talk to us a little bit in the wake of the financial crisis, just, you know, 08, 09, 10. That was where the squeezy action happened there because those industries were really broken and investors were just really skeptical about their ability to come back a little bit. So that's why we're talking about these two periods, dot-com and financial crisis, because those are the two real periods that we have to draw on, not what happened in the pandemic. We knew that the monetary and fiscal stimulus, trillions of dollars through at that, kind of ended that bear market very quickly. The chop in 08 and 09 was, was legendary. And, you know, it's what, again, I'll use the word interesting. And we were doing fast money in its early stages. Yeah. And there were nights that I went on, I can only speak for myself, but I was terrified because things were happening that I had never seen before in my career. Quite frankly, I don't think anybody had seen before. And we were tasked to try to talk about them. And the chop that went on for a good 18 month period was historic. And I'm not suggesting we're on the precipice of that, but you saw glimpses of it obviously yesterday and yeah. part of today. And, you know, the longer this lasts, the more I think, you know, this is eerily reminiscent of what we went through there. And again, if this Fed is hell bent on changing course correctly, by the way, in my opinion, then I think days like yesterday are going to be commonplace. Now, in terms of levels, well, you drew that green line. That's a logical level. And we held it yesterday. The question is for how long and how how much further do we deviate? How many standard deviations do we get away from that 200-day moving average? Well, listen, you know, you and I have been talking about this a lot, okay, over the last few months on Market Call here. Why have we been talking about the concentration in some of these indices? Why have we been talking about how shallow the sell-offs have been from the highs? I think, you know, S&P 500, I think the, the largest peak to drop decline in all of 2021 was about 5.5% or so, and then it was followed by new highs in the not-so-distant future. And, you know, guy, we joke about I joke about your your past in the business. Um, and, you know, the truth is, is that, you know, you started and this is really important. I think we, you know, some t- point on our podcast on the tape, it'd be really kind of interesting to talk about this. You started in the business, didn't you? Right. Like the week of the 87 crash or so. And, you know, a lot of people have different recollections about that. If you were me and you were in high school or whatever, you just kind of remember it being, you know, kind of big headlines. One of the few nights that maybe Tom Brokaw led the evening news about the stock market. But that's that didn't last very long, did it? It was a crash, but it came right back. No, as a matter of so I started my career in May of 86. Obviously, that happened in October of 87. But I remember being on the desk that day and the chaos around the commodities desk and all the things that were going on. And quite frankly, I didn't really understand what was going on. You have to remember, this is 35, 36 years ago, effectively. And you didn't have TVs on. You didn't have this 24-7 coverage of the markets you weren't really watching things in real time the way you are today. So you were sort of getting news sort of tangentially and ancillary. It was only after the market closed that day that I really realized what was going on. When I walked out of our office at 60 Broad Street and you saw some of, I don't want to use the word carnage because that's not the right word, but you see the looks on people's faces that you'd never seen before. So it was a fascinating time. But to, to your point, Although that day was devastating, the market actually wound up doing really well in the months to follow. And, you know, sometimes, Dan, and I think we say this all the time, you need um, 
unfortunately, you need days or weeks like that to flush the system. It can't the market can't continue on its merry way until it sort of um, rids itself of some of the excess. And I hope that's what we're in the midst of right now. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that really a lot of people who were involved in the markets back then, if you think about retail, it wasn't a big component of it. Retail now, they're sitting with, you know, trading devices in their hands and they can trade 24-7 in a lot of products and futures in particular. Um, you know, that also helps from a risk management standpoint. You know, we talk about some of these mini and micro products that the CME have. I mean, those are helping retail investors kind of hedge their books real time when stocks um, are not open. You know, Guy, all right, let's move to the NASDAQ futures, though, because this one was really interesting. And we've also highlighted this, that this S&P 500 made a new high early this year in the first week of the year. The NASDAQ has not made a new high since right around before Thanksgiving. So it was telling you on a relative basis, there was some weakness there. Now, we know the NASDAQ 100 um, is made up of about six or seven stocks that incorporate 50% of the weight of that index of 100 stocks. And if you look at the futures here, you see that at the lows yesterday, we were down nearly nearly 20%. Okay, so we're down a little less than 16% as we speak right here. What is your take on the over-indexing to those handful of names here? Have they been punished enough? We're going to talk about some of the earnings in just a couple minutes that we're going to see this week from the two largest components, Microsoft and Apple. But when you look at this chart versus the one we just looked at, the S&P 500, it looks a little weaker, doesn't it? I agree. And to answer your question, have they been punished enough? Well, history suggests they haven't been. And the overshoots that we've seen on the upside and so many of those names, well, they overshoot to the downside as well. And you, you mentioned those handful of names that were basically powering this index higher. We all know them. But have they overshot to the downside? I don't think so. Now, there have been some logical stopping places. And we talked about it yesterday that 157 level that I've been talking about seemingly for the last month, month and a half in Apple, that's where we traded down to and seemingly bounce from. But does that mean it's over? I don't think so, Dan. And you've talked about this and I'm not trying to sort of pinpoint Apple or to pull them out and, and sort of back or, or badly speak of them. But Apple has had 25 to 40 percent peak to trough declines a number of times over the last four or five years. And we haven't really come close to that now. I, you know, from that 182 level down to 157, you can do the math. I don't think it's enough. Yeah. All right. Before we get to those single names, we talk about the earnings that are coming up. And, and, and listen, this is kind of a loaded question. And, and I don't. And, and if it's not something you want to kind of kind of opine too much on, then don't. But you know, I had a couple people hit me. There's a lot of people who are skeptical of the stock market and skeptical of the stuff that goes on. And a lot of people think things are rigged. And I generally don't think that they're rigged, but I think that it's really hard for individual investors oftentimes to have a level playing field with people who have a lot more information or access to different tools, that sort of thing. But yesterday at the lows, it felt really bad, guy. And I don't know what would have stopped it at 1230. And But on a dime at like 1240, the market started a rally here. Do you think there's any way, and we're going to talk about the Fed meeting, do you think there's any way, you know that there's a lot of people who think that there's this plunge protection team where mm -hmm. the Fed goes in and they basically start buying futures to kind of put at least you know lipstick on a pig and maybe some other investors get in and they start tripping over each other to cover, you know, cover their shorts and then people start buying stocks and they play the momentum. Do you think that went on yesterday? Because again, this is a tricky week and you and I have talked about it. The Fed, they need to stay their course. If they're going to let the stock market push them around right now after it's fervent they've been about battling inflation, then they lose all credibility. It's interesting. I mean, there's no question that that group exists. I mean, it's documented that it does exist. Did they 
find their way into the market yesterday. There's no way to know. But this now, I'm going to skate in your lane for a second. And think about this, and I've brought this up a number of times. For the last decade, um, basically, in large part, you've been rewarded for being short volatility. You sell something, you earn that premium, and off you go on your merry way. But when volatility moves to the magnitude that it's moved over the last couple of trading sessions, when you've seen a VIX go from 19 to what then we get close to 38 or so yesterday that changes the narrative and what does it mean it means when people are short volatility without making your eyes glaze over the lower things go when you're short vol the more you have to sell and then conversely when things start going the other way the more you have to buy so you wind up chasing your tail because you set yourself up for that for being short vol in the first place so there's this negative gamma effect that's be created i think that was a large part of it yesterday. Now, maybe I'm dead wrong, but I don't think I am. Yeah, well, it's funny. You know, I'm just looking at some of these stocks that were down five, six, seven, nine percent, whatever the heck it was yesterday, and they had huge rallies off their lows. Um, but they're down that much today again. And so we really, you know, to your point that you just made a few minutes ago, really got to keep an eye on those lows put in from yesterday because if we go through those today, which would be a bloodbath, um, you know, just to all happen in one day. But if we go through those in the next few days, things are going to get a little ugly and you're going to see the major indices down 20%. The question is, how quickly can we come back from that? I, I personally think if we came back in a straight line, guy, that would be really bad. I think that, you know, to kind of form a base at lower levels, let people kind of interpret a little bit what a re-rating and valuations mean for the stock market. I think that'd be a really good thing. All right. On that note, Microsoft, after the close today, all right, when we were doing the market call yesterday morning before things got really nasty and Amanda and I were going over the implied move in the options market for Microsoft um, and I think we had a slide on it yesterday the implied one day move for tomorrow after their earnings was about four and a half percent right now after the vol of the last you know 24 hours or so that's about seven percent all right so this is a 2.3 trillion dollar market gap company and you know expectations i think are high despite the stock being low if you look at estimates for earnings and sales in the current fiscal year i think it's about mid teens percentage trading about 31 times that's mm-hmm. expensive okay guys so if they guide down just a little bit and why would you stick your neck out in this market with the lack of visibility you have and the pull forward if they guide down just a little bit the stock's going lower Stock's going to 261, actually. And if you look at it, it makes a lot of sense because that's where we topped out at again in late late April, early May. And that math lines up with what you just said in terms of implied move of about 7.5% off the base that we're trading at now. So, yeah, do you have to be a hero here? No, because we have said for a long time, and I'm not going to run from this, I've been bullish in Microsoft for a long time. And along the way, I'd say, listen, valuations don't seem to matter right now, given the growth they have and given that the market does not seem all that concerned about high valuation names. That narrative has now changed. So if they were to say something even remotely negative in terms of Azure growth or something like that, you absolutely could see that 261 level. Then we have a conversation. Then you say to yourself, is it enough to have a trading, uh, a, a trading range around? And I say, yes, it is. But 
to buy it here into an earnings release, I think you're effectively flipping a coin, and I think you would agree with me. Yeah, again, I mean, it's going to be really fascinating to see if they were able to put up a beat and a raise and the stock is going to rally because people are short it. Let's see how long it lasts, right? If people sell into that strength. And those are the sorts of things that we like to keep an eye on. I'll just say that your 260 lines up with that breakout level from last June, which I see that as that would be massive support to my eye, where if we go through that October low, but on the upside guy, that sort of um, 306 level, which you had thought might be support, technical support, that's now resistance. So we got a range here. That's what makes a market. All right, let's look at Apple because this one, they report on Thursday. It's a very different looking chart than that Microsoft mm-hmm. chart. It's basically taken out most of that parabolic move over the last couple of months or so when it took off in November and then broke out to a new high in late November. So it isn't anywhere near it's 200-day moving average. You've been kind of citing that 157 level. Well, we got there, and that's where we stayed. So you're kind of like Nostradamus over here. You look at that intersection between the uptrend from last March and the breakout level, or really where it took off in November, and you see about 150. And that makes sense. And if you're an Apple lover and you want to get back in this story and you think they're going to have a great 2022 and there's going to be some exciting things in AR and VR and maybe a car and a 5G super cycle upgrade, you know, guy, let's throw it all in there. Well, then you got your level to start picking at it if you're not in there. Well, it makes a lot of sense in terms of the levels. And we have seen Apple trade down to the 200 day. I mentioned it earlier. Now we're looking at it visually. And the reason why I talked about that 157 level was because Effectively, that was the prior all-time high in early September. And then you saw a huge downdraft into early October. And we mentioned that because, listen, you know, it's not that I don't like Apple, but I always am fascinated to listen to the people that say you own it, don't trade it. Meanwhile, this has been one of the better trading stocks in terms of um, predictability and, and peak to trough declines. I mean, just look at this chart right here, and you see now we're in the midst of the fourth one just over this period of time. If we were to stretch it out, you'd see even more. So that 148 level, effectively the 200-day moving average, makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense in terms of historic peak to trough declines, and it obviously makes a lot of sense in terms of that trend line that you drew and in terms of the 200-day moving average. All right, so we can't be all doom and gloom here, guys. No, there's no. You know, it's interesting, and I know you said, but I don't think we are. I think we're trying to be reasonable here. We're actually trying to point out levels that make sense, but with that comes some some negativity and some doom and gloom. Well, I mean, listen, we're consistent. I mean, we've been pointing out a lot of this stuff for months now and and really the disconnect between a lot of stuff going on under the hood in the stock market and some of the things going on in the rates market. And we got to get to all that. But really quickly, I just wanted to mention a a bright spot here in the stock market. Look at American Express. You might have missed this. I know you've been talking a lot of crypto down there at the uh, Context 365. um, And we want to hit we want to hit that. I got to hear what you and Michael Saylor, CEO Master uh, or MicroStrategy had to say. But look at this one, guys. Did you see this coming where they pre, you know, they, they announced earnings. They're saying, listen, people are spending. They're just not going to the office. And I just think it's important to highlight some of the price action here. Here's a stock that is expected to see 12% revenue growth this year. Earnings are going to be flat to maybe down a little bit. Trades below a market multiple here. I mean, this is one where if it can settle in here and you think the market settles soon, you probably want to own American Express. And it's a premium brand. We talk about it all the time. There's certain names out there that have a cachet around them. American Express is one of them. And to your point, it does trade at a, at a multiple that's not nearly commensurate with some of their rivals. Now, I understand some of that is for a good reason. They take credit risk, a MasterCard and Visa 
as more processing transactions. But the question you have to ask is how much of a, uh, a gap between the two there should be. And I think American Express should trade with a bigger multiple. I've said that for a while. I've been correct in that, and I've they've been dead wrong in that as well. We'll see. But your point about people spending, you've heard me say it 100 times on Fast Money. Never underestimate the U.S. consumer's want to spend. They always will. Whether they have the ability or not doesn't matter. They will spend. They don't spend. And this is another conversation when they're concerned about the economy. And when they're concerned about the economy, it typically comes vis-a-vis a stock market sell-off, which a lot of people equate as one and the same. Wow. That's a great segue, guys. as they say in the business. The negative wealth effect. We have a headline here from Goldman Sachs strategists. They see a risk of growth shock for stocks. Duh. Well, I mean, listen, you know, that's really the question here. Um, you know, we know and we've been talking about this for a while is that the Fed might be hiking battling inflation right into a decelerating economy here and they might kind of hike themselves into a recession and you and i have been spot on on this man and that you know i don't you know we're not taking a victory lap here but we're just saying that that failed breakout in november in the russell 2000 look at the russell futures here right now um that was pretty devastating you know if you thought that what what, what was that that saying the longer the base the higher in space well that louise yamada yes well there you go and and look at that you know below that Below that um, prior support, massive resistance now. It's down um, maybe close to 20% from those highs just made a couple months ago. Is the small caps, is the Russell Futures chart right here telling us or confirming what Goldman strategists are saying about growth shocks? 100%. And, and you know, we've talked, it's so interesting. We could do an hour long just on the RTY, the IWM, whatever you want to look at, we could talk about it and how went sideways for a long time. Why did it go sideways? Because the small caps are trying to figure out. Do we want rates to be higher because rates higher are are typically indicative of economic growth or rates going higher for the wrong reason? And it's interesting, Dan, you look at this chart. I don't think it's coincidental that this topped out in mid-March when 10-year yields were topping out about 178. Then we continued this sideways action. Theoretically, we got over the hump in basically the fall of this year of last year, excuse me, when things seemed to be... um, I guess in terms of economic outlook, things seem to be the brightest, which is why then the Russell went through this failed, as it turns out, breakout. Yeah. Now I think what it's saying is, wait a second, maybe there is a growth shock, and maybe we're going to find that in the form of, the again, the RTY trading lower. So I have said for a long time, I think this is one of the most important indicators in terms of where the broader market's going to go. I'll stand by that. And the fact that we're not rallying here in the wake of higher rates says to me, that inflation is the concern and growth is probably um, not going to be where people want it to be. Right. And I'll just say this, you know, if we look at the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield, you know, it might be suggesting that we're in a stagflationary environment because that yield doesn't go up a whole heck of a lot. And we know where the two year yield went to. It's about one percent here. So here we are at one seven three below where we were a year ago. Um, and that might be suggesting that longer term yield inability to go higher, despite the fact that the Fed is pretty steadfast in their battling of inflation, that might say that, you know, we're in a stagflationary environment. And, and Guy, by the way, um, our friends over at CNBC, they hired a new um, headline writer. I think his name is Nostradamus. Um, they had a headline this morning saying the Fed is likely to signal a March interest rate hike and further policy tightening uh, is coming. Um, you know, the Fed started their two-day meeting today. Um, is that news to you? I'm just curious what your take is on rates right here. Because we have this one-year chart that does look fairly constructive. Okay, you got this little flag here right back at the 52-week highs. Um, it looks like it 
wants to break out. And then we have a five-year chart. I'd like to maybe we can toggle back and forth between the two of them. You know, that one shows that some serious technical resistance between current levels and about 2%. No, and you've talked about this one. This is the important one to look at. Obviously, we saw support in the form of 2% back in 2017. Then you go to 2019, and we straddled that for a period of time until we obviously had a precipitous drop from that 2% level. So past resistance, past support becomes resistance. And I think that's what we're going to find in the form of 2%. Now, I've also said that's sort of your danger zone, and it makes sense. I thought we would be at 2%. I know you know this. At the end of 2021, that didn't happen. But I think we're going to get there, and I think we're going to get there relatively soon. I think what's going to wind up happening, if you ask me, which you are, in terms of the 210 spread, Again, I've said this, I'll say it again. I think it's going to find its way to 30 basis points, and that's going to come in the form of sort of 145 to 175 or 150 to 180. We'll see what happens. But when we do get to 2%, I do think there'll be a rejection at those levels. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, listen, we talk about rates here as it relates to you know risk assets because that's a huge driving factor. Another big driving factor is the dollar. And if you, you know, just in our careers when we've seen rates rising, especially after coming off of, you know, a period of easy monetary policy that's also coincided with the rising dollar. And I want you want to highlight this as we're in earnings season right now. And again, we just talked about what are the incentives, a lot of managements to guide too aggressively. Well, especially in the face of this dollar, here's a two-year chart of the Dixie, the US dollar index, which about 50% of that is the euro. We're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of that. But when companies that have a lot of international exposure are reporting and they're talking Talking about the strength of the U.S. dollar, that means they're selling, you know, less in those other currencies there. Um, so it kind of can hurt their earnings here. Are you focused on the Dixie here? And do you think that this little flag that it's been, it's held that uptrend, it breached it quickly, but it's held it now. Do you think we break out and we have a move back towards 100? And what does that mean for corporate earnings here in the U.S.? Well, I'll go backwards. In terms of a higher dollar, it does not augur particularly well for corporate earnings because, You know, so many of these multinationals, a higher dollar becomes a headwind, obviously, for their earnings. We'll see what happens. The dollar should be higher. Again, you sort of alluded to this. One of the reasons the dollar is not meaningfully higher is because we're starting to see other central banks at least attempt to get their houses in order. So this is all a relative thing. I do think the dollar will start to go higher. And I think that $100 level makes sense for a lot of different reasons. I don't think the stock market's going to like it all that much. On the flip side, if the dollar were to sell off here in a meaningful way and go back and test the 200-day moving average, which I think comes in the form of 93 and a half, I don't think the stock market's going to like that as well. So you're sort of in this no man's land. You know, a dollar higher is not going to be good and a dollar lower for the same reasons is not going to be good. So I think for market participants, the best thing they can hope for is a dollar that goes sideways for the next few months. Problem is, I don't think that's going to happen. All right. So if you're long gold, though, guy, which you have been uh, over the course of your career on many instances, do you like a rising dollar here? We've seen this pretty steady downtrend, but we had a breakout above that downtrend from the all time highs in the summer of 2020. It failed. It kind of found some support at that downtrend, just bounced off of it again. You know, the one thing I just say about gold, and we talked about it last week on the market call or the, the other day with Carter here, you know, I'm playing this for a move to the upside, but if it can't rally in this environment in a meaningful way, then it, I don't know when it's going to rally. Here. That's so I'm fair. just curious. So here are the gold futures here. You see this move. Um, they're not doing it violently. And I feel like it might get rejected at that prior high from, you know, late November. 
Yeah, and if you look at that GCJ2, I mean, we're now trading April 2022 gold, in case you're curious. Obviously, thanks again to the CME. GCA commodity, those are my initials, so it stands to reason that I should like it. But you mentioned it, Dan. I'm going to say this quickly. Gold should be doing a lot better, given that inflation now is front and center on everybody's lips, right? And given the fact that Bitcoin has been cut in half, if you had told me those things, those two things would happen in January, I would say gold's easily north of 2000. Well, here we are, not even close. So I do think gold's going to be a story. I don't know what the catalyst is going to be, but I say stay tuned. All right. So we've been talking a lot about inflation and what the Fed might or might not say um, this week about battling it. One of the risk assets, um, but it's an industrial commodity, is crude oil. And you have a lot of experience in this. And this is, you know, this is, this is a very constructive chart. I mean, it's been very volatile. And one of the good things about trading crude in the futures market, it's probably, you know, probably the easiest way to kind of set stops and manage your risk. You know what I mean? Is looking at a lot of these technical levels. If you look at that volatility from highs, you know, about a year ago or in Q1, when inflation expectations were also fairly high, you did see crude sell off about 16% from its high to its low um, a little less than a month later. Then again, in the summer, you saw a near 20% peak to trough decline. And then from the highs in October to the lows in early December, 27% almost peak to trough decline. Guy, we've had a huge run. We've made new highs in crude oil. We've come back a little bit here. Um, are we expecting some sort of pullback like we've seen? And listen, that has augured well for higher prices. I know that you think we're going to get to 100 in crude, but do we come to 100 in crude from lower levels here? Two augers in one market call is probably one auger too many. But I think, no, but, There's your, a point third. Is, but your, your point is exactly right. If we get there, where do we get there from? And are we on the precipice of another downdraft to potentially 75 or so? By the way, healthy in terms of what we've seen over the last year. I mean, these stair-step moves have been exactly what we need. I do think we're going to see triple-digit crude oil. I'm surprised we're not here yet. Um, there's some demand components out there, reduced supply, reduced CapEx. I saw Kyle Bass on CNBC earlier today talking about exactly that. I think it's very supportive of crude oil. You mentioned a higher dollar, a stronger dollar. That will be a headwind, but I think that will just slow down the inevitable. And, you know, we saw that downdraft again in November for twofold. Obviously, Omicron became a story on the Friday after Thanksgiving and to a much lesser extent. Uh, but the headline was the SPR release. Well, we've gotten it all back. And I do think we're going to continue to grind higher. And if you look at some of the oil service names today, quickly, all having monster days on what is, at least right now, a pretty miserable tape. Well, you've had a great call there, the OIH, DTF, that tracks the oil services. And I think one of your top picks for 2022 was Halliburton, which is having already a heck of a year. The only thing I'd say about crude is when I look at a chart like that and I see this kind of expanding funnel sort of thing, the volatility bands have been widening here, you know. And so if you look at those peak to trough declines, they be getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and that's one of the things. So, again, use your stops. Always use your stops when you're trading futures in, in, in very volatile risk assets like crude. All right. Lastly, guys. And then I'm going to let you get out of here, man. And I really appreciate the time this morning. I know you're very busy. You just got done talking to Michael Saylor. Michael Saylor is the CEO of MicroStrategy. You and I have got to know him over the last year or two. He's been very generous with his time articulating why he is a huge Bitcoin bull. He's probably one of the biggest Bitcoin bulls out there. He's converted a large part of his company's balance sheet to Bitcoin and he's made, he's been very transparent about it here. Just give us in a couple minutes, you know, we have 
Bitcoin down 55 or so percent. The sentiment feels really bad. Guys like him get in uh, the critics' sights very easily. What did he have to say to you generally about where we are? Because you look at that chart and you say to yourself, 29,000, the lows from last spring and summer, and then earlier last year, they better hold right here. He's clear-eyed. I mean, clearly he understands what's happened over the last couple of months. He understands the volatility, but he also looks at it a much longer term period, which I know you're familiar with. I mean, he looks at this in terms of year-over-year appreciation. He'll compare it to the S&P 500. And quite frankly, even with this pullback, there's no comparison. But when he has a vision of five years to 50 years, you know, the volatility that we're seeing really doesn't bother him all that much. He'll talk about acceptance and this corporate acceptance that continues to be to regur. My word's not his. And I think he just views this as an opportunity. I also think, and we talked about it, you know, his view with the Federal Reserve, they'll try to combat this. And maybe that's why Bitcoin has had this next leg lower, combat this, this being inflation. But he doesn't think they'll be successful. And I think when he realize, when the market realizes that's the case, that's when the next leg higher starts taking place in Bitcoin. Yeah, well, listen, you know the levels there. I mean, if you're just a chartist, you, you don't have to you put whatever symbol you want on that chart. You'd say to yourself, it better hold there. And maybe it needs to base a little bit. And then maybe you have this kind of move back towards, you know, that 200-day moving average that's moving lower. Listen, Guy, um, really appreciate it. Um, we'll be back with Market Call on Thursday with Liz Young um, at 11 a.m. Um, but just kind of like just give us our two cents here. I mean, yesterday was panic behavior. Um, and I know you weren't staring at your screens all day, and I know you were talking to a lot of investors. Um, we're down a lot today. If they don't save them today, like they did yesterday, um, you know, do you think it's is it too is it too late to panic and take risk off? In your opinion, I'm just curious, like holistically, I'm just thinking about this. Well, I mean, panic is interesting because we, you know, typically when we talk to say the word panic, it's associated with selling. But you know, I've said this many, many times over the years. You know, we see panic buying as well. Quite frankly, the buying you saw yesterday late in the day was panicked buying. It's just people don't associate the word with the buy side. So we'll see. Is it too late? If the market is causing you anxiety, it's never too late. You need to do what's in your risk profile and your risk parameters and what helps you sleep at night. I can't answer that question. But if you find yourself lying awake, worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, do something about it, Dan Nathan. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's always my advice to people who are not, um, you know, as schooled in some of these. Tech. Listen, people who know about risk management at institutional level make mistakes all the time. But the point that I always say to people is if you're not staring at the screens, is that this is not what you do. If you're starting to feel uncomfortable, move your feet at the very least. You know what I mean? Like trim a position or a couple of positions. At least you've done something there. So listen, I appreciate that. Listen, cool heads have to prevail here in the markets. It will not stay this volatile for that long, but understanding the frameworks why some of the reasons that these stocks or some of these risk assets have come in the way they have is really important. All right, Guy, I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to everybody to today's Market Call Macro. Be sure to check us out every Tuesday live at 11 a.m. for our Market Call that looks to the uh, markets to the lens of the futures market here. Today's Market Call Macro is brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group and Open Exchange. Guy and I will be back on Thursday for Market Call Street Research with Liz Young of SoFi. We will see you then. Thanks a lot, Guy.